good morning, friends. Uh, welcome to West Bowles. Glad you're with us this morning. Choir, thanks for a, a great job this morning. Our choir is just cool. What's even cool about the choir, they're so cool, even when they flip pages, it looks cool. Like, you know you're cool when just flipping a page is cool. But great job. Thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. Uh, again, welcome. My name is Thomas Fitzpatrick, lead pastor here at West Bowles. Uh, so honored by your presence, especially if it's your first time with us, maybe your first time in a long time. I'm not sure if Ryan mentioned it, but if you are here for the first time, stop at the Welcome Center on your way out in the foyer here. Uh, grab a coffee mug, our gift to you, just a token of appreciation for spending some time with us this morning. Some more information about our church, about the Christian faith in there. Uh, hopefully that will come into handy uh, to you. And we are excited that you're here with us. God's doing some crazy things in this church. We would love for you to be a part of it. Uh, speaking of crazy, Ryan already mentioned this, but the weather, this is crazy. You guys do a great impersonation of Malibu. You really do. You need to work on it a little bit, so keep going, okay? Keep, keep trying. You'll, you'll eventually figure this out. But what an, an amazing couple of days. Uh, before we jump into the Word this morning, I want to highlight just a few things. First of all, a thank you to the crew, Heather and the dance ministry last night, who put on a great father-daughter dance. It was a great time. Uh, we, had some, we had some fun. I mean, Paul with Clay, with these two girls right here. I mean, we've got a dance team. We've got a dance squad up in here. So uh, that was so fun. Thank you guys for doing that. What a great uh, ministry and, and uh, outreach to our community. Also, last week, we uh, started a new class for, for newly married, engaged and newly married-ish. And so now we have kind of a home builder series of classes. These are Sunday morning Bible classes at 930, and it's, uh, it covers different life stages. So we've got the engaged and newly marrieds, we've got families with young children, and then families with teens or young adults. And so if any of those describe you, we would love for you to come back next Sunday and join one of those classes at 930. Incredible people in each class discussing some really relevant stuff. I think you'd be really blessed uh, by joining one of those classes. I think you'd also be blessed. Yeah, the leadership team is like, yay! Uh, you'd also be blessed through a ministry called Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is a ministry that focuses on and helps people through addictions. And we'd love to start an official branch uh, and, and version of it here at West Bowles. And so to do that, uh, we've already got two guys who have agreed to help us start. We need two ladies who would help lead the, the gals version of this ministry. And so if you are interested in helping people through addictions, if that maybe describes your past, if you'd love to speak into that, if your heart uh, burns for that, Come find me or Ryan after service, and we'll, we'll get you all the details. We'll get you involved. Again, great things happening. God's doing some crazy things. Thank you, church, for, for being so invested and so committed to it. In January, we started a new series entitled The Story. It's a, it's a series in a book that's designed to help us walk through uh, the entire biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. It gives certain excerpts from the NIV, and the, the hope and the goal of the series is really so that you can see how all the different stories in the Bible connect to each other. But more importantly, how all the different stories in the Bible connect to your story. How they can hopefully make sense of and, and give meaning to your story. So if it's your second or third time with us, uh, you're kind of planting your flag with us for a little while, make sure you go out into the foyer and grab your free copy of the story. We want you to be reading with us. Uh, we want everybody to be as invested as possible in this journey. Before we cover anything new, though, let's make sure we have understood uh, what we've covered thus far. The first four chapters of the story we put together in a little mini-series called Something Out of Nothing. And in this series, what we learned is that God is the only being powerful enough to create something out of nothing. In chapter 1, he creates the cosmos out of the chaos. Chapter 2, he makes a new nation out of a relative nobody. Chapter 3, it's good out of evil. Chapter 4, it's blessing out of bondage. You see, the first four chapters hopefully have proven to us that God is able to make the impossible possible. He's the only one who can do it. 
And if there's one other takeaway I want you to get from those first four chapters, it's this. The God of the Bible can be trusted. You can trust this God with your very life. See, he made you. He wants to bless you. He's always working things out for you. And last week we learned he can deliver you from anything enslaving you. This God is not one God among many gods. He is the one true God above all other gods. And so we want you to give your life to him. We want you to trust him because you can. So today we move out of something, out of nothing, into another little mini-series called In Sickness and in Health. Let me pray for us, though, before I jump into it. Father, would you bless us now? Would you speak to us now? Help us to hear your voice and for our hearts and our, our souls and our minds to be totally transformed and convicted by what we see and what we hear. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more like the people we were originally intended and created to be. Fill this room now with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start off the, uh, the message this morning by showing you a clip that I think perfectly captures the essence of chapter 5 of our story. Check this clip out. Chloe, will you have Keith to be your wedded husband, to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love him, comfort him, honor and keep him in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. The rings, please. I could watch that video all day long, man. <laughs> because it wasn't my wedding, that's why. But chapter five of our story, it's, it's a pretty strange chapter to say the least. In this chapter, we read about God covering a mountain with a thick cloud of smoke. We read about horns being blown, thunder and lightning covering a mountain. There's a list of rules written on stone tablets. There's a golden calf that comes out of a fire. Instructions on how to build a tent in the middle of nowhere. This is weird stuff. And it's okay to say that. This is strange. But in all honesty, nothing comes closer to depicting and capturing the essence of this chapter than a wedding scene. And a wedding scene gone horribly, horribly wrong. It's an epic failure. Let me show you what I mean. In chapter 4, God powerfully delivered his people from 400 years of Egyptian slavery, captivity, and bondage. And in chapter 5, we learn that God doesn't want to just deliver you from something. He wants to deliver you for something. And that for something is on page 59 of our story. It says this, Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, and he said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a special kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So God leads Moses, and what most people believe is two million other Israelites at this point. He leads them out of Egypt and straight to the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai. It's in the shadow of this solid granite mountain peak that God tells Moses something incredible. The point of the rescue is so you can have a relationship. 
You were delivered out of Egypt so you could be with God. When it comes to this story, this chapter, most of us think it's all about Moses going up on some mountain to be with God. No, no, chapter 5 is all about God coming down on the mountain to be with us. It's his initiative. It's his hope. It's his desire. It seems if his heart longs to connect to ours, he wants to be with us in this special, intimate, empowering type of way. Look at the language that he uses here. I carried you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. I want you to be my treasured possession. The whole earth is mine. Everybody is mine. But I want to have something unique with you. I want to do something special with you. The point of the rescue was so that you could have a relationship, a dynamic, intimate love relationship with God himself. See, God doesn't just free his people and like, we're out and forget about you. God frees his people so he can be with his people. But as is the case in every relationship, it takes two to tango, right? Paul experienced that when he asked Lori out. He wanted the relationship. Lori wasn't so sure. Same is true here in chapter 5. God wants the relationship. And Israel says, can I call you back? Sorry, Lori, we love you. I just had to bring that up. But you see, it takes two to tango. And the people in our story, they weren't ready for this relationship. You see, it's one thing to take a person out of Egypt. It's another thing entirely to take Egypt out of someone. Think about it. For hundreds of years, God's people, they've been living under the influence, the influence of Egypt, the influence of Pharaoh, the influence of slave masters, the influence of fickle gods, a cruel pagan society. Although God loved them and wanted to be with them, they weren't ready for this relationship. They weren't exactly marriage material quite yet. You didn't want to bring Israel home to meet mom and dad. Think about it. Hey, mom, uh, this is Israel. And, uh, yeah, she's been living with the pagan pharaoh for 400 years. Uh, she tends to complain a lot. She's rather fickle. She's easily angered, and she's got a record of cheating on her lovers. But I'm going to marry her next week. Mom? Mom. See, she wasn't marriage material. God was ready for the relationship. God wanted to have the relationship, but the people weren't exactly ready. There was a lot of work that needed to be done. Reminds me of what a student told me once at Pepperdine where we used to do ministry. One day this young man comes to me and he's like, so now what? Don't you just love how students think you can totally read their mind? Uh, so now what what? I asked. He says, I think I've got this sin thing down. So now what am I supposed to do as a Christian? I'm not sure I handled the situation uh, all that well, but I just started laughing out loud in his face. <laughs> Woo! Oh! oh! I shook my head and walked away. See, when it comes to counseling with me, you get what you pay for. So, <laughs> what the kid needed to come to terms with, though, is the same thing Israel needed to come to terms with. And it's the same thing that we've got to come to terms with. Elise Fitzpatrick, no relation to me, but she's got to be brilliant with a name like that. Uh, she worded it perfectly. She said this, I'm more sinful and flawed than I ever dared to believe but I'm also more loved and welcomed than I ever dared to hope. What an amazing statement, how true it is. It's hard to believe, it's hard to say, it's hard to come to terms with, but we are more flawed than we'd like to admit to, aren't we? We've got more wrong with us, more going on inside of us than we'd like to admit to. Sin, self-centeredness, a lack of sympathy for the world's problems, it's seeped into our lives in ways we can't even fully fathom. 
Reminds me of the scene in Spider-Man when Spider-Man becomes Venom. Right, this little glob falls on him, and it doesn't just stay on his arm or his shoulder, wherever it fell first. What happens? It goes into his very DNA. It's happened with us. It's messed us up. Sin has messed us up in ways we can't even begin to describe. One person told me this way, sin has messed up the way that we think, but sin's also messed up the way that we think about the way that we think. You've got this sin thing down. Really? Really? I think you need to look back in the mirror. Sin has taken over. And that's a problem if we want to have a relationship with the Lord. The fact that we're covered in all this muck and mire is a problem if we want to be with the Lord. Joan Osborne, uh, back in the day, sang a song. What if God was one of us? Remember that song? Remember the next line? Just a slob like one of us. Sorry, that was way off tune. I I don't even know what tune is, but um, he's not a slob. Joan, I, I like the question, and I understand what you're getting at, but God is not a slob. He's not like one of us. He's not a little puppy gnawing at your feet or a little toddler demanding that you pay attention to them. Look at me, look at me, look at me. God is not like that. He's the unique creator, sustainer, redeemer, and deliverer of the world. That's who this God is. He's the one in chapter 5 over the mountain, making this granite mountain peak look like a little sandbox. That's the God of the universe. And what's crazy about it is that this God, this mighty and majestic God, he wants to hang out with you. Not only does he want to hang out with you, he wants to dwell with you, live with you. You see, we've met the Lord. We've been introduced to his name. We've seen his faithfulness. We saw a demonstration of his power last week. But now it's time to go to the mountain and be with him. It's time to go from knowing about God to knowing God. It's time to move from a God who does things for us to a God who lives with us and in us. The question is, do you want it? Do you want him? Do you want to move from one level of intimacy with God, one level of understanding about God, to actually living with God, being in an intimate connection with God? Because if you do, chapter 5 makes it clear, a couple things are going to have to happen. You're not marriage material quite yet, but God still wants to be with you. So let's let's work through a few things. Here's the main point I want you to walk away with from chapter five. You have to prepare yourself if you want to host his presence. See, at Christmas time, we learned you don't got to clean your act up in order for God to show up. He loves you so much, he'll come into your mess. But if you want to have an intimate love relationship with him, you better prepare yourself. I mean, preparing for the in-laws to come over around the holidays is one thing. Preparing for an incomprehensible God to come over into your heart, that's a whole other thing. So we've got to do a little preparation And so in this chapter, God lays down the law, so to speak. He gives Moses a set of rules and regulations, and he puts all of these things together for the people so that he can be together with the people. And what I love about this chapter is really the three things that God asks for his people are the same three things that all young couples have to work through. It's the same three things that all newly married people have to work through. The first is a series of promises they'll make to each other. The next is a sweet new place they're going to live together. And then finally, it's a set plan on how they're going to deal with the conflict. Let's walk through each one of those three. The first is this series of promises. One of the most important parts in any wedding ceremony, at least in my opinion, is the saying of the vows. I just love that part. The bride and groom stop being told what love should look like, and they start telling each other what the love actually will look like. And it could be the formal kind of older school, uh, you know, to have and to hold and sickness and in hell till death do us part. Or it can be a set of totally unique vows that the bride and groom have spent weeks and months writing. Okay, the bride spent 
a lot of time. The groom just downloaded them that morning. But, but, but they've spent some time thinking about this, right? But in that moment, each person is expressing how much they love by explaining how they will love. Does that make sense? They express how much they love by explaining how they will love. And with that in mind, look back at what God said on page 48 of our story. He says this, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land that I swore. I will give it to you as a possession. Sounds like a groom's vows at a wedding, if you ask me. This is the groom, God himself, standing up and saying, I promise to do these things for you. God, uh, do you swear, do you promise to have and to hold, to love, to cherish, to provide, to rescue, to free Israel? And God says, I do. I do. And now in response to his promises, in response to his commitment to us, he asked if we would commit to things for him. Ten things. They're commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments. See, and some people read these as a set of impersonal rules that are handed down by the moral police in the sky, but they're actually personal vows that were given to you and that you make to the lover of your soul. Through these ten laws, these ten rules, God more or less is saying, this is how you'll bring me pleasure. This is how you'll make me smile. This is how I want you to love me. In response to all that I've done for you, I ask that you now do this for me. And how could we not say, I do, I do, I do. See, we don't keep these rules in order to get on God's good side. Some of you have been taught that. that you better clean things up before God will love you. That's not the case at all. We don't keep these rules in order to get on God's good side. We keep them because he's proven he's always on our side. We don't keep these rules out of duty. We keep them because we're filled with delight. We give him our life because he first gave it to us. It's the difference between saying, please, God, please save me, please listen to me, please rescue me, please help me, versus thank you, God. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for saving me. It's a small difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. His commitment to us was proven long before his commandments were ever given to us. On the basis of what God has done for you, he now asks that you do 10 things for him. 10 things that will bring his heart great delight, but these 10 things will actually bring you great delight. I mean, think about it. Why would God free and rescue his people from slavery over here just to take them over here and do it all over again? So you were under a bunch of burdensome rules and regulations over here. Let me rescue you from that. All right, come over here. More rules and regulations. <laughs> you thought I loved you. You thought I was a good God. Well, I'm not. No, no, no. He freed you here so he could be with you here. He rescued you over here so you could have life over here. And these Ten Commandments are given out of that desire for life, out of this love that he has for us. These laws are all about love. They're all about life. They prove to us, like, like any good parent, that, that God cares about us, that he knows what's best for us, and that he needs to set up some parameters for us. And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 119 says over and over and over again, I love the law. Read Psalm 119. It's like, who is this guy? You love the law. You love the Ten Commandments. Who loves the law? Who says, I love the speed limit? Nobody, especially Ryan. <laughs> you don't say, I love law. Who says that? Oh, 
Oh, you say you love the law if you don't see it as law but as expressions of love. You say you love the Ten Commandments if you don't see it as rules and regulations but as an opportunity to have and experience life. The law is not a way that God limits us. It's a, a way that God loves us and it's vice versa. Think about this. How do you tell God, how do you show God that you love him? I mean, do you buy him flowers? He kind of created them. You buy him chocolates? I'm not sure he's a big fan of chocolate. I'm sure he is. He made it, but what kind? Dark, milk, white? I don't know. Combination? Do you take him out for a movie? Take him out to an, how do you show God that you love him? This is how. When you live out the Ten Commandments, what you're doing each and every moment is saying, God, I love you. This is how you tell him. This is how you show him that you love him. Every time you live out the first four, which are all about God, you tell God that you love him. And every time you live out the next, the next six, you tell God that you love him. The law is a way to show our love. Now here's the thing. If you go back in the Bible and read more in depth in chapter 5, you'll, you'll quickly learn these are not the only set of laws that God gave. He gave over 600 rules and regulations to the people. And that's where most people stop reading the Bible. They're like, uh, that, that's too complicated. Let me just try to explain it to you in this way. The other 590 laws all come into play when you break these 10. These 10 are the basis and the foundation of your relationship with each other and with your God. And when these things go haywire, there's a lot of other things you're going to have to do to make up for it. And so all the other rules and regulations come into play when these first 10 are broken. So this week, here's your challenge. I want you to stop and just think for a while. Have you ever told God, I love the Ten Commandments? Have you ever stopped and delighted in the things that he's given to you. If not, why not? Do you see him as regulations and rules or do you see him as an opportunity to have a relationship with him? How well are you doing in keeping these commandments? These are your vows. How well are you doing at showing God that you love him in and through the 10 commandments? We have something here called the power of one, which is just a, a series of ways that we're trying to put our faith into action. And one of the things we challenge each other with to do every month is to memorize a passage. And this month I want you to memorize God's vows to you because it starts there. But maybe this month, if you're really crazy, cray-cray, got it in, almost didn't. Maybe you should memorize the Ten Commandments, too. Maybe you should memorize his vows, because it starts there. His commitment to us was given far before his commandments were ever given to us. But maybe you should memorize your vows as well. So to have this relationship, to get his people ready, to prepare themselves, God had to establish a set of promises. And then after the promises were laid out, after the vows were made, God can move in with the people to a whole new place, a sweet new path. We had some good friends back in Albuquerque who got married, and they actually moved into the house that the husband had grown up in. It was really wild. As a kid, this, this guy grew up in this house, and now he was going to bring his kids and raise them in this very same house. So we were there helping them get the house all set up, and the wife starts putting the cups and the plates and the cabinets, and the husband stops her, and I kid you not, he says, Honey, that's not where my mom put those things. They actually go over here. Okay, ladies, you get it. You get it. And all the guys are like, what? The wife, like, pierced into his soul. She says, this ain't your mama's house any longer. And the faster you get that through your head, the better we'll be. Put the cup right where she wanted to. It was like, it's time for us to go. Thank you. But I wonder if God wasn't saying something similar to the Israelites here in chapter 5. 
So he asks them to, to commit to a series of promises, and then he asks them to set up and prepare a sacred place for him. It's called the tabernacle. And God is very specific in how he wanted this house to be set up because he had to prove something to his people. This house is going to be different. This ain't Pharaoh's house. This ain't your mama's house. This ain't even your house. This is my house. And things will be different. Look at what he says in Exodus 25, 8 and 9. This is page 63. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Matt said it already so eloquently this morning. To meet with God, you need a place. You need a special place. A special place that's been set apart and that's designed to help you connect with God. Most of us want to experience God, don't we? We want him to speak to us. We want to, we want to see him move in powerful ways. We want our life to be different because of his life. And yet we're not willing to create space for him. To create time for him. To go be with him. We want it to happen by accident. It never happens by accident. That's what the tabernacle is trying to prove to us. The tabernacle is a portable tent of worship, and it would have put this sanctuary to shame. In the bottom of page 69, we have a brief description. There's gold, purple linens, hand-carved wood, beautiful stones, this gorgeous chest containing the Ten Commandments and symbols of their rescue from Egypt. This ain't your mama's house. This is your father's house. And in this house, the Spirit of God literally dwelled. That's what tabernacle means, to be in, to be with. So God tabernacled in the tabernacle. He came to be with you. His presence and his power were tangible. And that's our hope for this space. That's our prayer for what happens every Sunday morning when we come together. That's why it's so important, such a big deal for us to be together. We hope and pray that the Spirit of God literally resides in this sanctuary. We hope that every Sunday you connect with God, experience God, and are infused with God as you take time to create space for God. We hope that this sanctuary provides you with some uninterrupted, focused, intentional time with God. And that's why Jesus goes berserk when he goes to the temple. And the temple had been turned into a circus, been turned into a marketplace. This is a place where people meet with my father. How dare you turn it into anything else? And so I just hope and pray that you experience God in some way every time you're in this place. And we're big fans of this place, and we're big fans of Sunday morning. It's my favorite morning of all, but you need a place. You need a space where you can go be with God daily, not just once a week. So you need a place, whether it's down in your basement, maybe at your desk at work before everyone else arrives, maybe it's the corner of your favorite coffee shop. You need a place where you can quiet yourself, still yourself, humble yourself, and be with your God. The tabernacle was this incredible space. It illuminated and gave clarity to everything the people needed to do. It, it says the Spirit of God came down in a pillar of fire at night. That means everything was done in the light of God's presence. I don't want to offend anybody here, but let, let's, be, let's be honest, let's be specific. When you were disciplining your child in your tent, it was done in the light of God's presence. When you were having relations with your spouse, it was done in the light of God's presence. When you were reading, when you were studying, when you were sleeping, when you were doing everything, it was literally done in the light of God's presence. 
And that's how he wants for our lives to be lived as well. He wants everything we do to be lived in the light of his presence. So I think God wants us to create space for him, to have a space and a time and a place, not only in our hearts but in our minds, where he can come and he can dwell and he can illuminate everything that we're doing. See, it was crazy about this pillar of smoke and this pillar of fire. The people said when they saw it, they stayed put. And when it left, they left. God literally directed their steps. He wants to do the same thing for you. So I challenged you, maybe memorize the Ten Commandments as a, as a way to memorize your vows of love. Another one of our power of one commitments is to reserve one. It's an hour a week of being with the Lord and do it outside of this time. And most of us are struggling to be with the Lord. Like Matt said, our life is just chaotic, man. The F train is just going. So what if you did five minutes? Five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. Just take five minutes to be with the Lord, to create a space for the Lord, to let him tabernacle in your life. Ten minutes, a couple times a week, all of a sudden you got over an hour of time with the Lord. And I think amazing things will happen in your life when you make that a priority. So understand the promises that he's made to you and that you need to make to him. Understand you got a sweet new place you need to set up so you guys can be together in an intimate way. And then finally, after all that was done, God came down and said, there's one more thing we gotta do before we can get married. We gotta talk about conflict and how we're gonna deal with it. As a college pastor, I did a lot of uh, premarital counseling. And to be honest with you, I have a love-hate relationship uh, with premarital counseling. On one hand, it's so important for couples to talk through their issues and their past and, and money matters and all that stuff. But on the other hand, every engaged couple I've talked with sees everything through rose-colored glasses, right? It's all hypothetical, best-case scenario. Money? We'll be fine. There aren't that many expenses out there, and we don't spend that much. I mean, we only eat out a few times day. <laughs> and intimacy, that won't be a problem. God created us for this. We'll be naturals. Communication, we talk all the time. Yeah, when I'm playing video games, she's talking. <laughs> Our communication's great. And every married couple is thinking to themselves, if only it were that easy. See, a big part of relationships, especially long-term intimate love relationships, is understanding conflict will come and understanding how you will deal with it when it comes. Now hang with me just for a second. Most people assume that Moses went up the mountain one time, got this handful of goodies from the Lord, and then came down. Like, look, look what I got from God. He went up and down seven different times. Seven different times. He came and he went. Different things from the Lord. And he came and went. The first time, the people said, we'll do everything God says. Right in your margin, premarital counseling. Our relationship will be wonderful. Well, then on one of his last trips, the trips that take, a trip that takes 40 days, they changed their tune very, very quickly. Let me read parts of this for you. It says this, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. This fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, ah, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, okay, well, take off all the gold stuff you're wearing, you and your sons and your daughters, bring them to me. So all the people took off the earrings and they brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed to him and he made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. He fashioned it with a tool. And they said, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Afterward, they sat down and ate and drank and got into all kinds of crazy trouble. Then the Lord said to Moses, you better get down there because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. 
They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and I have made them, they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and they have said, this is your God. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. When Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf that people had made and he burned it in the fire. He ground it up into powder, scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. There's your first other health shake in the scriptures. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry with me, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, just take it out. They gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. This is far worse than messing up a ceremony and pushing the bride into the pond. This is messing up the whole marriage. This is going from saying, God, we're committed to you for life, to a few days later saying, God, get out of my life. They have changed their tune so quickly. And the person left in charge, Aaron, he's got the lamest excuse ever, doesn't he? I didn't build it. It just popped out of the fire. I don't know how it happened. Wait, wait, that sounds familiar. I don't know how the footballs got deflated. It was cold out and the PSI was off and blah, blah, blah. Nathan, boom. But that's just like us, isn't it? We pawn off responsibility. We act like nothing happened. We play dumb. But that's dumb. Because you see, there's a conflict. And, and we avoid it and it makes sense because there's always consequences to conflict aren't there? There's always consequences to conflict. Think about it. You do something idiotic. You get in a fight with your spouse. There's not only conflict, but there are consequences. Sometimes those consequences could be diminished trust, a guilty conscience, some tension, maybe banishment to the couch. But when we lie to those we love, when we cheat on those we're committed to, we betray those we have a bond with, there's a price to pay. And when it comes to our relationship with God, when we cheat on him, when we betray him, when we turn our back on him, there's not only a price to pay, there's literally hell to pay. And in chapter 5, 3,000 people experienced that hell. After that day and going forward, innocent animals experienced that hell. And then one day an innocent man, and not only a man but God's own son, not only experienced the hell but he went through it so we would never have to. See, God looked at the sins of his people. He looked at the fact that they were not ready for a relationship. He looked at the ways they betrayed him and, and broke his confidence. And someone had to pay the price. Someone had to bear the responsibility. Someone had to deal with the consequences. And so that first day, 3,000 people died. All 2 million should have. But God was merciful. And he allowed the punishment to fall on the shoulders of 3,000. After that day, as the people continued to sin and live for themselves and betray God, he realized, again, someone's got to pay the price. Someone's got to take on the responsibility. Someone's got to deal with the consequences. So that day, moving forward, innocent animals died. God would take the burden, and he would place it on the shoulders of innocent animals. And then God looks at our lives and how we do the same thing, how we live for ourselves and are so filled with sin and again, he said, someone's got to pay the price. 
Someone's got to deal with the consequences and take on the responsibility. And so what he did is he sacrificed his own son and he put the burden and the weight and the enormity and the consequences on his shoulders instead of ours. See, the death of 3,000, the death of innocent animals, the death of God's son is designed to do something. It's designed to get your attention. When you betray God, when you break the bonds and the vows and the love relationship you were created to have, people get hurt. You get hurt. Others get hurt. Creation gets hurt. And ultimately, God gets hurt. And so the death of 3,000, the death of innocent animals, and the death of God's son shows us that God loves us too much, though, to just let us suffer the consequences on our own. He devised a plan, a merciful plan, where he personally dealt with and put an end to the conflict. This is a set of incredible promises. It's a description of an incredible place. But more than anything, I want you to see in chapter 5, there is an incredible plan to deal with our mess. All right, real fast, let me, let me wrap this up. Do you want to know what is possible in and when you commit to these things? I don't want you to see these three things as a new set of hoops you've got to jump through. If you commit yourself to these three things, to truly living out your promises, to setting out a space every day to be with God, and surrendering yourself to his plan, you know what's possible? This isn't a bunch of hoops. This is a taste of heaven. God wants you to experience it this side of the grave. See, Moses, it says, talked face-to-face with God, like one speaks to a friend, page 67. Moses got a glimpse of the glory of God. He was blown away by the glory of God, and you know what he saw? He saw the little, the little strings coming off of God's jeans, and he was blown away by what he saw. That's on page 68. And then Moses' face, it says, shone like the sun on page 69. When you devote yourself to the promises, when you commit to creating a space, when you surrender to his plan, your life will be radically, radically different. It'll be a better life, an amazing life. And you will not only have a great ceremony where the bride stays on her feet the whole time, you'll have an amazing relationship for all of eternity. So let me pray this over us, and then I'll ask the band to come up and close with one final song. God, you are an incredible God, and we are so humbled and honored by the fact that you would want to have a relationship with us. God, we are so messed up and so flawed, and yet you're so committed to us that you want to see us get to the point where we are marriage material. You want to be with us so bad that you're willing to wait, you're willing to sacrifice, you're even willing to die so we could become the people that you can ultimately be with. God, help us this week to commit ourselves to these three things, to to renewing our vows with you and rejoicing in your law. Help us to create a space, a sacred, special space we can experience your presence and your power. God, help us to surrender our conflict and your plan of dealing with it. Help us to surrender our lives to it. You are merciful and good, and we want to have a relationship with you. And if we don't, God, would you come down now in a powerful way and blow us away so that we do? Make it so. Make this church to be like the tabernacle, a place where people can sense and see and live in light of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.